This episode contains content that may be sensitive to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Carrie. And I'm Chrissy. And And we we are Status Macabre. Recorded live from the Maddie Johnson Podcast Studio at GOT Sound Studio in Columbia, South Carolina. This is Status Macabre. Hello. Hello. It's good to see you. I know. How are you? It's been so long. I so very long. <laughs> I'm trying to think like, you know, of course, the last time we recorded, we talked about the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. And I've, I I don't know that people are tired of hearing about that yet. Who isn't? But I'm not. <laughs> it's it's so dramatic that you're you have to. And it's not your own chaos and your own drama. So it's like absolutely magnetic, like magnetic that you just want to be like let's talk about this so I don't have to focus on my own shit well and it's also too and I think I thought about this after we recorded last time it's like watching a train wreck that you just can't stop watching I agree it's like cringeworthy but you're like I gotta watch it yeah Yeah, with your with your hands over your eyes but they're Mm -hmm. parted Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah I yeah I don't have any um any further uh Words worthy, yeah. Uh, items about Amber or or Johnny or anything else for that matter. I feel like she's like, let me just get into my episode. I know. I'm. I gotta tell you, I'm excited because this is definitely something that I'm. Su- I always hate to say that I'm interested in the stuff that we talk oh, about because it's gory. It's awesome, though. but it's. I'm definitely interested in in this. I I this. Subject- I'm not saying it because you, it, I'm waiting to oh, like no. till she says the words. So I we'll just go ahead and get into it. Um, today we're going to be talking about Munchausen syndrome and and more specifically Munchausen by proxy. And guys, I know I talk a lot of shit, but <laughs> no, for real, I I think I've had and experienced this. And and I know we didn't talk about this beforehand, but there was a girl in our office. That uh, I our old office, yes, okay. That I feel very certain had Munchausen's. Um, Did I know her? Oh yes. Was she where? Come, get, I need hints. Give me something. Um, she was my. I guess you could say nemesis. Oh oh, uh, oh. oh. And um, I hate to say it that way, but you know, she always had some, you know, um, issues said that you know I got I didn't brain cancer I've got a brain tumor I've got some kidney stones I've got cervical cancer you name it she had it and and if you had it guaranteed the next day she was gonna get it (laughs) I kid you not and I did not know that individual well enough to even minutely minutely oh it was yeah, she was very speculate. loud about it um and you didn't really have to know her on a personal level level to know this but yeah I mean there was constantly something wrong to finally be diagnosed and I I put diagnosis and air, air quotes guys um with lupus and and god forbid anybody who is who's got lupus because it is a horrible disease but um come to find out in further research and we'll talk about some of this lupus is one of the 
um, and, and really the number one disease that people who have Munchausen's syndrome end up saying that they have. And the reason for that is because they're the symptoms and well, really just the symptoms alone are, are vast and way, way across the board. Right. And it's hard to pinpoint, very right. hard to pinpoint. And so I, I find it, we would make fun of her and this is not something you make fun of people about, but we absolutely did. Cause I'm an asshole, but you know, and call her Munchausen's behind her back because she, we, we totally believe that she had it. And, and yeah, come to find out, you know, final diagnosis. Oh, I got lupus. Yeah, sure you do. But why are you in the tanning bed? <laughs> and why? Yeah. Why are you in the tanning bed? Lupus is one of those. You can't be in the direct sunlight. Right. And, right. Yeah, no. She's- I had a neighbor that had, this was maybe 10 years ago. It was, mm-hmm. it, it was a while ago, maybe not quite 10 years ago. And he had lupus and I never had any experience with it. And I was like, holy. Yeah, it sucks. Crap. It and sucks. he was literally, we lived in a, I'm going to say, we're going to have cul-de-sac. Cul-de-sac. That's what I say. And so when you know, by where my house was, it was a, just a direct shot into his house, uh, him and his wife's house. And I was like, oh man, that's, um, it is, it is a terrible disease. I have a coworker whose wife has it and, and yeah, it's, it's debilitating to some extent and, um, it can be very severe, uh, yeah. but yeah, this, uh, home girl swore she had it in the end because, you know, the doctor literally told her I cannot, Admit nor deny that you have a brain tumor because there, <laughs> there might might be, there may not be, but oh weird! It, it oh yeah, she. Oh, God. Okay, back to our I know. I'm sorry. I was like, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole, but yeah. So uh, we have experience with this, but um, so we're going to talk about Munchausen syndrome. Um, it's a psychological disorder for those of you who do not know. Um, where someone pretends to be ill or deliberately produces symptoms or illness in themselves, otherwise known as affectious disorder as well. Um, their main intention is to assume the quote-unquote sick role so that people care for them um, and they are the center of attention. And and guys, don't mistake the sole reason why people do this is for attention. Um, any practical... yeah. Yeah, it, it's 100% about them and I need attention. Um, any practical benefit in pretending to be sick, for example, claiming incapacity benefit is not the reason for their behavior at all. It is strictly attention. I cannot emphasize that enough. Um, and Munchausen syndrome is named after a German aristocrat named Baron Munchausen who became famous um, for telling wild, unbelievable tales about his exploits. Nothing to do with sickness. Right. But he said he would, like, jump over the moon and, like, kick some animals in the head. Like, did these crazy things. Like, just Like the things nuts. a child would say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not-so not stuff. And so, yeah, they started naming shit that really didn't happen to um, other people as Munchausen's um, around sickness. So types of behavior um, for people with Munchausen syndrome can behave in a number of different ways, including pretending to have psychological symptoms, for example, claiming to hear voices or claim to see things that are not really there, 
um, pretending to have physical symptoms, for example, claiming to have chest pain or a stomach ache. Um, also actively trying to get ill, like deliberately infecting a wound by rubbing dirt into it, you know, or feeding them around someone who's sick, feeding themselves salt, oh. um, doing things that are, that will, you know, cause symptoms. Right. So I didn't know that pretending to have the psychological symptoms. Oh, it makes sense. Yeah. But it's just not. Yeah, you don't about. think that people would, yeah, try to, yeah, make it look like they're mentally handicapped or got some kind of mental disorder. But yeah, um, some people with Munchausen syndrome may spend years traveling from hospital to hospital, faking wide range of illnesses. Um, when it's discovered they're lying, they may suddenly leave the hospital and move on to another area. Um, people with Munchausen syndrome can be very manipulative. Um, and that's, I mean, I think you have to be in order, yeah. in order you to, to be fake con- your very illness. Convincing. Yep. In, in the most serious cases, um, you know, they may undergo painful and sometimes life threatening surgeries, even though they know it's unnecessary. Um, by comparison, Munchausen syndrome by proxy in a nutshell ends up being child abuse. Um, and it's not just limited to child abuse, I should say. Um, it, it could be for any kind of dependent, you know, old, disabled, um, mentally, whatever. But it, it can impact anybody that somebody's caring for. But people, and, and mostly women, who have Munchausen by pro- proxy impose and inflict sickness on children um, to gain attention. Um, thankfully, this syndrome is rare among our population, and I, I say our population being the U.S. Um, it's estimated that only about 1% of people meet the criteria for Munchausen by proxy. Um, however, there are no reliable statistics regarding the total number of people in the United States who suffer from that, you know, this disorder. And that's just because individuals with Munchausen's are more likely to lie about it. Right. Um, they insist that their false symptoms are real. Um, moreover, they are often seek treatment for themselves or their children at many different healthcare facilities. So it's hard to keep track of those people. Um, so statistics are a bit misleading. Um, most victims of Munchausen syndrome are by proxy are preschoolers. However, some cases have involved older teens and young adults. And if you don't believe me, just go talk to Eminem. Yeah. Um, I believe his mother <laughs> absolutely had Munchausen by proxy. So in this episode, we're going to look at some of the more devious cases, um, two in particular, um, involving Munchausen by proxy syndrome. So the first one I want to talk about and that I researched um, is involving a woman named Mary Beth Tenning. Now, Mary Beth had to be the most unluckiest person in the entire world. Over a 13-year period from 1972 to 1985, each of her nine children, nine children, died under very mysterious circumstances. Uh, People around town were beginning to believe that the Tinning family was just cursed. Mary Beth and her husband Joe's trouble began in 1971 
when their daughter Jennifer died shortly after her birth due to contracting meningitis. Now, meningitis is very contagious, um, and it and it can be life threatening. I had spinal meningitis. Did you? When I think you told me this. I was yeah. young. I don't. I'm segueing for a second. No, nobody ever talks about meningitis anymore. But um, I have a scar uh, because they had to do a spinal tap and on the bottom of my foot on my right heel. So because I was young and squirmy, mm-hmm. right? They they wrapped my feet around a board to keep me as still as possible because you know they're tapping into my to spine. spine. Yeah. And I was, um, I rubbed the bottom of my heel completely raw on my right foot. And so I have a huge scar. Um, I'm sorry, on my left foot, on the bottom of my left foot on like. From rubbing. From, the, from rubbing it. It never healed really well. But I, I, I essentially like scrubbed the bottom of my foot off. I rubbed it so much. And so, yeah. Howie, did they, so meningitis, did you get uh antibiotics or antibiotics uh, now I was I was like two so I don't sure. actually remember it but it was from from what my mom said it was it was yeah it was bad bad like it's, there was some touching and, and that would have been 1979 wow or 80 so yeah yeah ish right around in there so it wasn't um that's crazy yeah well meningitis um Makes was me wonder no I'm kidding I really did have it <laughs> no well what I was gonna say is so the the this girl that we knew also claimed to have meningitis. So okay, en- enough about that. <laughs> so um, so anyway, Mary Beth's baby was due in December, and Mary Beth anxiously awaited its arrival, you know, praying that she'd have a Christmas baby. Uh, so Mary did what any reasonable and logical person would do, and deliberately attempted to induce labor on her own. And she does this by inserting a sharp metal object into her uterus. Now, I think most of us women are cringing right now, but it also makes me think of, you know, coat hanger abortions. Mm-hmm. So, and maybe that's what her full intention was, given what we know about her, um, and that she's got Munchausen's. But um, this, of course, induces introduces a, the very dangerous meningitis virus to her baby, while in the womb. And consequently, um, Jennifer is born with large abscesses on her head, and she succumbs to the virus eight days later um, after, you know, she's born and passes away at St. Clair's Hospital in Schenectady, New York. Now, the tragic string of luck continued 17 days later when Mary Beth rushes to her two-year-old, or takes her two-year-old, um, Joseph, to the emergency room at yet a different hospital um, called Ellis Hospital, which is also in Schenectady, saying that he had choked on his own vomit and was having seizures. Now, the emergency room discharges him a short time later, citing that they can't actually find anything wrong with him, um, as he didn't have another seizure, seizure while in the ER. Mary Beth then takes her son home to only return a few hours later unconscious. Doctors attempt to save him, um, but fail, and Joseph passes away from what doctors say is cardiorespiratory failure. Not surprisingly, there was no autopsy um, performed, and so they buried Joseph. 
So now this is two children. And I, I'm sorry. No, uh, go ahead. In, in within a year, am I looking at oh, yeah. that right? Yep. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Oh, God. I, I, that's why I'm looking. I'm like, surely this isn't within a year, but okay. Yep. Nope. Very 17 days later. Um, seven weeks. Damn, I missed that. Look at that. Yep. Seven weeks later, on March 14th, 1972, four-year-old Barbara, um, this is Mary, Beth, and Joe's eldest child, is rushed to Ellis Hospital because she's supposedly having seizures as well. Now, doctors want Mary Beth to leave Barbara for overnight observation, but despite the doctor's urging, Mary Beth takes her daughter home. A few hours later, believe it or not, Mary Beth is back in the ER with little Barbara, who is now unconscious. She's admitted into the ICU, but then dies two hours later. Doctors blame Rye syndrome, which can cause a child's blood sugar level to drop while the levels of ammonia and acidity in his or her blood rise. So it causes, you know, internal damage. At the same time, the liver is swelling and it develops fatty deposits. And swelling may occur in the brain, which can cause seizures, uh, convulsions, or loss of consciousness. So now on November 22nd, 1973, Mary Beth gives birth for the fourth time to a son she and Joe name Timothy. Now, Timothy only lives a little over a month before Mary Beth tells doctors and nurses at the same hospital, which is the Ellis Hospital, that she found her newborn not breathing in his crib. So doctors rule his death as a SIDS death, and the matter is dropped. Now, this is, <laughs> what are we on now? Four. Four children. Yeah. Four children. It's only a little bit further down the road uh, when Joe, Mary Beth's husband, says that his food is starting to taste a little funny. So he couldn't figure out why it tasted funny and decides to go to the doctor because maybe there's some kind of chemical imbalance. There's something wrong with him. And he's like, what the heck's going on? So the doctor takes a look at him. He looks healthy enough. But you know, let's just go ahead and order a blood panel and toxicology test to see what might be going on in your system and and maybe impacting your taste. Well, doctors and Joe, for that matter, are shocked to discover a lethal dose of barbiturates um, in his system. Joe has no idea how that could happen, but then recalls that Mary Beth's nephew has a prescription for, for pheno. Um, barbitol. Now, phenobarbital is used, you know, for anxiety and um, can be used for lots of different things, but it's mostly, you know, for anxiety, help you sleep, calm down, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Joe, knowing his wife not only stole her own nephew's medication, but sprinkled the crushed pills over his food, he refuses to press charges against his wife. Now, I have no idea whether he's just the stupidest man on earth or maybe he was just scared shitless of leaving his children with Mary Beth like the remaining children. Probably both. But he stays. Yeah. Tells doctors, authorities, I'm not pressing any charges. 
which, you know, I stopped to think about it, and this is in the 70s, so I don't know if if the laws are different back then. Um, well, back then you wouldn't want to be embarrassed as a man. That is fair, but at that, I feel like this day and age, if I poisoned you and you're like, what the hell's going on? Police aren't going to give me the give you the option to press charges. Right. I guess in the 70s it was different or whatever in the state maybe it's different. Fair. Yeah. Yeah, I just find that very odd. But either way, he goes home to his wife. I mean, that's 43-ish years ago. Years ago, ago. yes. And it's, you know, maybe he goes home, takes all prescriptions away from her. I don't know. Buys takeout every night. I don't know. Well, it's on March 30th, 1975. Mary Beth gives birth to now her fifth child which they name Nathan in September of that same year. So it's it's September, 1975. Mary Beth shows up at St. Clair's hospital with none other than Nathan in her arms. And she's telling doctors that he died in her car. Now she's claiming to be, to have been driving around with the baby in the front seat. Now remember this is the seventies. So sitting in the front seat is, Okay, it's possible. And she just casually looks over while she's driving and sees that Nathan is blue and no longer breathing. So there's no explanation. And doctors are, you know, ultimately chalk that up as, you know, SIDS again. Now, I don't know if you're following and, you know, she's gone to two different hospitals for Mm -hmm. all of these different deaths. So hospitals are not linking these deaths together. Well, in 1978, the couple make arrangements to adopt a child. <laughs> the same year, Tinning also becomes pregnant again. So the Tinnings did not cancel the adoption and choose to keep both children. So in 1978, it's August, they receive a baby boy named Michael from the adoption agency. Two months later, on October 29th, Mary Beth gives birth to her sixth child, who they name Mary Frances. So it's now January 1979. Tinning rushes Mary Frances to the emergency room directly across the street from her apartment, uh, saying the baby has had a seizure. The staff were able to revive her. However, on February 20th, Mary Beth comes running into that same hospital with Mary Frances, who is now brain dead. Once again, Mary, uh, Mary Beth said she found the baby unconscious and did not know what had happened to her. And her death once again is attributed to SIDS. So after Mary Frances was buried, Mary Beth becomes pregnant yet again. So on November 19th of 1979, the Tinnings have their seventh child who they name Jonathan. And he, you know, it's proven that history is going to repeat itself. And four months later, Mary Beth brings an unconscious Jonathan into the emergency room at St. Clair's Hospital. Just like Mary Frances, he was also revived. Um, And due to the family's bad luck with keeping children alive, Jonathan is sent to Boston Hospital for observation. Um, doctors don't want to leave it in the hands of their, <laughs> of right. Joe and Mary Beth. 
So doctors there at Boston Hospital thoroughly examine him and determine that there's nothing wrong with him. And there's absolutely no valid explanation as to why he would have stopped breathing. Now, doctors release Jonathan to his parents and they go back home. Well, a few days later, Mary Beth returns to St. Clair's with Jonathan, who is pronounced brain dead. Sadly, Jonathan is pronounced dead on March 24th, 1980. Well, it's late February 1981. Michael, the Tenning's adopted child, just happens to fall down a a flight of stairs. An ambulance is called, and he's treated with facial injuries and a minor concussion. Well, one week later, Mary Beth is calling her sister-in-law, freaking out, because she can't seem to wake Michael up. Now, um, just confirming, because we're talking about a lot of dates, a lot of kids, (laughs) who this woman is killing. Yes. Michael is the adopted child, and he is only, it looks like three. Like, he's little. Okay. He's very little. Okay. Okay. I'm with you. Yep. And so, Mary Beth had gone in to wake him up after a nap. He's not moving. He's just laying there. So her sister-in-law says, you know, get the hell off the phone with me and call the doctor. So, or take him to the hospital. So Mary Beth, um, and they're still living in front of the hospital, mind you. Um, Rather than rush him across the street because he's not, you know, breathing (laughs) and he's unconscious. She's trying to wait until he's dead, dead. Right. She calls a pediatrician claiming that Michael doesn't feel good. Well, no, he doesn't feel good. That's like very high level and vague. He's not breathing. So, and he's unconscious. So they tell her to bring him in at 10 a.m. that morning. Well, Mary Beth shows up with Michael wrapped in a blanket and wait for it. He's not breathing. He's pronounced dead. This time an ops. Um, an autopsy is performed, and the cause of death is documented as acute pneumonia. But what's strange about this is that the mono- or the pneumonia, the n- pneumonia. <laughs> Sorry, guys, it's been a long day. Um, pneumonia. It wasn't actually bad enough, and had spread to his lungs um, to, you know, cause explain to, yeah. his cause of death. Um, and, and actually label it as pneumonia. But doctors are at a loss and have no idea what other attributing factors could cause him to just die. So they put down pneumonia as an explanation for his death. So afterward, the Tinnings are like, we're leaving. We got to move. So on August 22nd, 1985, at the age of 42, Mary Beth gives birth to now her eighth child. This woman has been pregnant eight times in a total no, of you. nine kids. Now, all the other kids are dead. Yeah. And so this is her only child. So maybe not wanting to be pregnant. Maybe she was like, oh, crap. You know, I don't know if these people were Catholic and just didn't believe in birth control or she was just a, you know, somebody that loved being pregnant and got, you know, getting the attention that fed, you know, that makes sense because of the Munchausen by proxy. But um, she doesn't go to the OB for any prenatal treatment until she's five months along. So she's pretty far along. I think that's 
unheard of now, but in the seventies or the whatever, I guess we're in the eighties now, I think it was probably a little more common possibly than, than where we are now. I mean, it wouldn't be what I would do. Sure. But. Sure. Well, you still had probably women smoking, drinking. Absolutely. In the seventies and not thinking anything of it. Right. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah, that tracks. Well, nevertheless, the pregnancy was absolutely normal and the baby was normal. Um, and without any obvious health issues when she was, you know, born. Now, Tammy Lynn, which is the baby's name, was observed by the Tenning's neighbor um, and neighbors to be very happy and a healthy baby. Um, Mary Beth was believed to be a good mother or at least presented herself that way. There were a few red flags that were brought up by Mary Beth's friend and neighbor, Cynthia Walter, who just happened to be a practical nurse. Now, Cynthia noticed that, you know, there were baby bottles um, left out all over the house. You know, they were half empty. They were half full. She would leave one on the counter and then later pick it up and feed the baby. So she's not putting any milk in the refrigerator, which to me is kind of gross. Um, that could definitely cause a baby to be sick, in my opinion. <laughs> but um, and, and Tammy Lynn had a constant diaper rash that refused to heal. Which is odd because that says to me and probably this Cynthia lady that her diaper wasn't being changed regularly. So Mary Beth was also observed to be very frazzled when Tammy cried. So anytime the baby cried or was uh, frustrated or whatever and making noise, Tammy, um, I'm sorry, Mary Beth would lose it. She just seemed very impatient. So one day after a shopping trip with Mary Beth and Tammy Lynn, Cynthia receives a frantic call from Mary Beth. Cynthia rushes over, finds Tammy Lynn on her changing table, not breathing at all. Cynthia testifies later that she was unable to find a pulse and the baby wasn't moving. Um, At the emergency room, the baby was then pronounced dead. Well, at this point, because... We're talking nine kids have died. And in this particular death, it just seemed a little weird. And oh my God, we get it. It's way too freaking long. Child Protective Services are called. Yeah, after Tammy's death. It's this is nine? This is the ninth. Yeah, it's fucking killing me, dude. Which leads us to why. Why did Mary Beth kill all her children? So Mary Beth's dad was World War II. He was in World War II, served. She was shuttled around during her parents' absence and was told by another relative that her birth was unplanned and unwanted. So I'm sure that probably had some kind of effect on her psyche. No. I mean, come on. I mean, suck it up, buttercup. Thank you. I mean, my my dad told all of us, we didn't want any of you guys. I know. Get the hell out. (laughs) 18, let me help you pack your bags. It's time to get out. Well, her parents weren't. Obviously, not exactly the most loving. So Mary Beth was also apparently beat by her father and locked in the closet from time to time. All I can say is, you know, it's the 70s. Maybe it was, I'm sorry, 50s, 60s, whatever. Suck it up. No, I'm kidding. But she she led a very lonely childhood. According to experts, emotionally neglectful parents can have a huge impact on parents' psyche, which could account for her feelings toward her own children. So I'm not justifying, but just explaining. Right, yeah. Um, and, and, and it's said by experts that Mary Beth likely had postpartum depression. 
but she never got over it because right. she was pregnant the whole time. Exactly. <laughs> and in the 1970s, you know, postpartum was definitely not classified as being a mental disorder and was ignored. You just didn't talk about it. Right. It was if you were feeling funny after pregnancy, I'm so sorry. Rub some dirt on it and move on. When dis- What's really disturbing is Mary Beth's behavior, which went unreported to authorities. That, yeah. You have all these people witnessing all these deaths. And even her husband, I blame her husband. Uh, yeah. He, ultimately, he definitely should have said, uh, what the fuck? Especially after a you, note to somebody after you've poisoned me, you'd think that he'd be on high alert, but he wasn't. And during the funeral for Jennifer, which was the first death, um, there was a very small casket with toys that Mary, Bus- Mary Beth stood by you know, receiving people that came to show their respects. And this reportedly happened at all nine funerals. But afterward, at the gathering, she's greeting everybody, coming up to everybody, talking to them casually. Oh, hey, how you doing? Thanks for coming. And she was acting like it was a party for her, which is disgusting. And she also blatantly went on numerous spending sprees after insurance payments came in. Which, to me, is a giant red flag. So, there's definitely a pattern of behavior that was obvious if someone had been watching, i.e. Joe, Mary Beth's husband, once again. Yeah, and and then you're going to sleep with the woman that killed your kids and tried to kill you? And not only that, but you're going to keep getting her pregnant. Piece of trash. That's what I don't understand is, again, you've been poisoned, yet you still impregnate your wife. So in almost every instance, Mary Beth would have, you know, would take her child to the hospital due to a so-called seizure. Doctors would then run tests. Everything would come back normal. And then Mary Beth would then take her kid home only to return a few days later with a dead baby or child. And it, how Mary Beth was not questioned earlier in her crime spree, I just don't understand. And is it just a lack of communication within the hospital? Yeah. People being scared and not wanting to butt in. You know, what is, Maybe what is it, it? It was too new then. People didn't know. Surely a woman wouldn't do that to her, to her children. And that's, that's possibly fair. that's fair. And, and which, you know, this is why people thought they just had really bad luck. Yeah. But, oh Yeah. People were obviously very naive. Um, Personally, again, Joe is the enabler or the dumbest man on the face of the planet. Why did he stay? Why did he keep knocking her up after he was poisoned? So I think that's the million-dollar question, right? Mm -hmm. Well, chief of police, um, you know, talked to the DA after they discovered the deaths of all the Tinnings children. Uh, The DA called pathologists. And it was confirmed that there was no natural reason, no natural cause of death for Tammy Lynn uh, specifically. She was completely healthy. An autopsy determined that Tammy Lynn's cause of death was actually the result of suffocation with a soft object. So Mary Beth is caught. She's, She's done for. So on February 4th, 1986, Mary Beth was interrogated for seven hours um, at which point she finally confesses that she suffocated her boys in addition to Tammy, but then retracts um, and recants 
the admission on the children that she did admit to. So she ultimately um, is only charged with the death of Tammy Lynn because they can't prove the other children. Um, And she refuses to admit any wrongdoing in the deaths of any of the other children. So it's just Tammy Lynn that she goes on trial for. And a trial takes only three weeks, surprisingly. Um, I would think that that would be drawn out, but it's just the one kid, so it's three weeks. And after 19 hours over the course of three days, the jury returned a guilty verdict. On July 18, 1987, Mary Beth was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. She was denied parole six times. And finally, in August of 2018, at the age of 75, Mary Beth was granted parole. Her husband, Joe, was there to pick her up in the gate. Oh, my God. Right? That, I don't, I, it blows my mind. He has, you know, I mean, he's taking marriage vows to the utmost. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and that's that's great for him. Um, when she kills him, finally, um, we'll all say we told you so. So that's the first story, um, and I find that very extreme. Um, I think we've all heard stories of Munchausen by proxy. Um, this next story is more recent and equally as tragic. Um, and you actually may have heard about this case. It was on 48 Hours. There was a lot of, of talk about it Um you know, in the media. And and this is about a girl named Lacey Spears. Now, Lacey is young. Um, she's in her early 20s. And she worked as a babysitter at a daycare center in um, Decatur, Alabama. Did you just look her up? And you're I'm like, trying to, yeah. <laughs> you're like, oh, yeah. I, I find her very mousy. She looks odd to me in interviews that I've seen her um, on. She she looks like she's just not all there. Um, she talks intelligently enough um, to some degree, but I, I find her just very odd. Her behavior, even in an interview, is very odd. It's almost like she's got her eyes wide open um, when she talks and she's, you know, trying to be animated, and and she's very indignant. Um, she's just a bit of an odd bird, but reportedly she was great with kids um, and seemed by many people to be a, a sweet soul. Um, her friend Shauna. Yeah, she looks weird. Doesn't she? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, her friend Shauna believed Lacey to be a wonderful, um, with her children particularly, um, and Lacey befriended Shauna and would come over to hang out with her and the children on a regular basis. But it got to be a little bit too much for Shauna. Every time she turned around, Lacey was at her house and was really just up in her junk. Um, and she was all encroaching on her family's business, um, always around with the kids. When she's trying to spend time with her husband, there's Lacey. And so it was... It was just, she was very clingy um, and and a bit emotionally immature. And so Shauna was like, you got to back off, like back off. And so Lacey, you know, took the news in stride um, and and did as her friend asked 
and backed off. Well, Shauna then remembers her friends being very, very excited um, because in 2008, Lacey calls her to tell her she's pregnant. Now, Shauna's very happy for her friend, even though Lacey was very young. Again, she's only 20. Um, the father was reportedly a police officer named Blake who had died a hero in a car accident. So I guess knocked her up, then died. Well, Lacey said she dated him briefly. It wasn't a big thing, but she, it was her, he was her soulmate um, and was just very upset about his death. She said that he didn't want to be or, or couldn't be a part of the child's life, which was very tragic for the son, you know, for for her son. Um, and this would later prove to be a really huge deal and, and ultimately a lie. Um, and and we'll get into that in a, in a minute. But this poor child's life could have been prevented. I'm, I mean, tragic ending could have been prevent, um, prevented. So... Garnet Spears, which is a very strange name. I like the name Garnet. Garnet. I don't know that I've ever heard it before. It's interesting. Yep. That's his name. Um, and he was born on December 3rd, 2008. He would die only six years later from salt poisoning, um, having gone to over 20 hospitals, doctors, and pediatricians over the course of his short life. Right from the get-go at nine months, uh, Garnet was diagnosed with failure to thrive. Lacey claimed he refused to eat, and when he did, he would throw it up, um, would refuse a bottle, um, definitely would not nurse. Um, And so doctors decided to perform a stomach surgery on him uh, because they couldn't figure out why Garnet couldn't keep his food down, and he just wasn't gaining any weight. So doctors performed this surgery. Well, even after the surgery, Lacey takes Garnet back to the hospital because he is refusing to take a bottle and rapidly losing weight. So Garnet is airlifted to Birmingham Hospital where they tested his sodium levels, um, probably just during a routine blood panel, um, which was at 166, which is very um, elevated. A normal sodium level should be no more than 140. So thankfully, doctors were able to bring it down, but they're confused as to how it got that high to begin with. He's a very small baby, and there's no reason why he should have that much sodium in his body. So at nine months old, after taking Garnet to more doctors to find out, you know, why he's still refusing to take a bottle, a new set of doctors decide to provide him with a, a an alternative, and they insert a G-tube into his stomach, um, which allows nutrients to be fed directly to him. And a lot of times this is done for, you know, very critically ill, um, elderly, well, even young people who just cannot keep food down and they need to be able to get nutrients to their bodies. Well, Garnet seems to be doing well afterward, um, begins eating solid food at the appropriate age and, you know, basically hitting all the normal milestones. Witnesses said that at two years old, um, Garnet was a normal toddler. Um, there were there are actual photos of him eating various types of foods, pizzas, cookies, you know, crap that a two year old is going to eat and yeah. gobble down. Well, yet Lacey over here still claiming to have issues with feeding Garnet. 
she tells doctors that he's, you know, going extended periods of time where he refuses to eat and will only take food via G-tube. So she's still complaining, going from doctor to doctor, trying to find out why won't my kid eat and why, why is he going extended periods of, of time without eating? Um, well, as Garnet begins to reach school age, Lacey decides to move them to a community in New York called Community Fellowship. Now, the goal of this community is to care for the elderly, and workers actually receive free room and board, along with free education for their children at this community. Lacey thought this would be the ideal place for her and Garnet, um, because it's just the two of them. And Lacey took, you know, care of el- the elderly while Garnet went to school and made friends with the community members. It was just a, a real safe place for both of them. Well, Valerie is one of the community members, and she connects very strongly with four-year-old Garnet. She would feed him nuts, fruits, and snacks um, when she would visit him, and and she just felt like this really um, awesome connection with this four-year-old little little boy. He tells stories. Um, he was rambunctious. He was just a, a cutie. Um, and if you see pictures of him online, he's just a cute little boy. Well, Lacey begins telling members, and now a new set of doctors, that Garnet is complaining of serious stomach aches and still is not eating by mouth. She's having to feed him via G-tube. He's examined by gastroenterologist who says he's perfectly healthy, and the doctor's really confused as to why he still has a feeding tube because by the age of four, yeah. that thing should have been removed. There should be no reason why he's not eating health, you know, food via mouth because he's healthy. There's nothing wrong with him. Um, and he's gaining weight. So I don't know what you're talking about, right? Well, doctors are like, okay, let's run some tests just to make sure we, we want to verify what the, you know, the mom's saying. So they run some tests. Well, they come back negative for any serious diseases that would be preventing Garnet from eating. And as far, far as doctors were concerned, there's absolutely nothing wrong with Garnet. And he was a completely healthy and happy four-year-old boy. And doctors are pushing for Lacey to let them remove that G-tube. Because at that age, Think about it. You're out and about. You're rolling around in the dirt. You're playing, especially being a boy. That G-tube can get infected. And then you run the risk of introducing serious infections into a small child's body. So recommendation is get the hell, you know, get that thing out. And they said, okay, well, if you're that concerned and you feel like he's still not eating, let's perform some nutritional tests to determine what his needs are. You know, is he lacking in vitamin A, B, C? You know, what is it that he's not eating and and you feel like he's not taking in, right? So they push to do these tests. Well, Lacey absolute straight up refuses. She's not letting doctors do any kind of nutritional tests, which to me is super fishy. Like, why won't you let, Especially, doctor's yeah. test. Yeah. I mean, this is this is very recent. Oh, and so yeah. as far as I'm concerned, everybody's filling this poor kid. Yes. 
Well, doctors felt that her reaction was odd because why won't you let us take out the G-tube? You know what the risks are. And they asked to see Garnet's medical records, but they never received them. Um, and it's obvious to the doctor that something is not quite, quite right with Lacey. Uh, he later reported that he thought this actually might be a Munchausen by proxy case, um, but wasn't 100% sure and therefore didn't report her to authorities. So in January of 2014, Lacey reports that five-year-old Garnet was sick with a fever and a stomach ache. He's taken to the doctor who in turn checks him out, determines there's absolutely nothing wrong with him, send him back home. Maybe he's got some little virus. Within a few hours, though, Lacey is back claiming that Garnet is complaining of a severe headache and he's just clenching his head in between his hands. Now, if that, you know, this whole pattern of if we're looking at Mary Beth, she takes her, you know, says her kid's sick, takes him home, comes back, sicker, or dead, which is essentially what Lacey's done. Garnet is admitted into the hospital, tests are ran um, to try and determine what's wrong with him. Now, doctors also are smart, and they set up a camera in Garnet's room to keep an eye on him. And wouldn't you know it, Garnet's, Garnet's excuse me, condition improves. Um, meanwhile, Lacey is posting on Twitter um, constantly, and she's posting updates about Garnet being in the hospital, asking for prayers for his recovery. Please, please, please. Oh my gosh, my child's so sick. Oh my God, my child is so sick. I don't know what to do. I'm so upset. Anyway, posting one or two, you know, updates is reasonable, but Lacey's posting was over the top with numerous posts about how sick her child was. And to me, that's always a red flag. If you're constantly posting that crap. That's the normal now. It, everybody, everybody's got Munchausen. Yeah. (laughs) That's, That's my thought. That's my thought. So two days later, um, after Garnet is admitted, he can be seen screaming on camera, clutching his stomach. Um, You can tell he's kind of in pain. Lacey's trying to calm him down, but he's in too much pain, and he soon codes. Doctors at this point take blood to see if they can figure out what's going on. What they discover is that his sodium level, which is at 138, skyrocketed to a dangerous 182, which is off the charts. Yeah, because the high was no more than 140. Correct. Exactly. And so when he came in, it was only 138. Now it's 182. Doctors are baffled and working against the clock to get him stable. Well, they decide to transfer him by helicopter to a more equipped hospital. And at this new hospital, Garrett's sodium level is normalized. So he's he's back to normal. Yeah. But unfortunately, because of that elevation in the sodium, it resulted in severe brain swelling, which rendered him brain dead. And two days after he was airlifted to the hospital, he died. So he was brain dead before they airlifted him? Most likely, most likely. But at that point, they weren't really sure. Um, They were just trying to deal with the fact that his sodium levels were so high. So, you know, it's kind of weird what happened. There's no explanation. So the date is January 23rd, 
2014. It's only a few days after he was admitted into the hospital that he's now dead. Um, in between, things were normal. So doctors are at a loss and can't figure out how in the hell garnet sodium levels could get so high naturally. There's no explanation. Well, doctors at the first hospital decide to go back and review the camera footage of Lacey and Garnet right up to the point where he starts screaming in pain. What they see is shocking and eye-opening. Leading up to the time that Garnet starts clutching his stomach, there's nothing really unusual about Lacey's behavior for the most part. They do notice Lacey take Garnet to the bathroom back-to-back two times just minutes before Garnet is in pain. What they notice about that is the cup that Lacey has. When she takes Garnet to the bathroom, she's carrying a cup. Now, why? We don't know. We know why. Right. It's not long after that Garnet is screaming in pain. So what's in that cup? Well, doctors feel like that whole scenario is odd. And authorities are called and they begin an investigation. Well, they go to her apartment and find multiple medications on a table um, behind a large container of salt. They also observe an IV bag with a solution that appears to be breast milk, which makes sense to them because according to Lacey, she's still breastfeeding Garnet, which now I'm all for breastfeeding your baby toddler and it's totally mother's choice and I'm not knocking anybody. Um, but how long and frequent you do that, I, I think five years old is a little bit extreme. Yeah. I'm not sure that I agree that's healthy from an emotional, mental standpoint for you or your child who's five. Um, that to me is a huge, huge red flag. You know, why did Lacey feel like she needed to nurse her five-year-old child? You know, what is she getting out of that experience other than probably some kind of pleasure? And I'm not saying it's sexual. I'm just saying it's some kind of I've got control or it's attention. It's something. It just doesn't sit right with me. Anyway, police decide they don't need to take the IV bag or the one that they find in her garbage either as evidence just because they feel like it's breast milk. Um, there's no need for that. And, and shame on the cops. You know, I'm, that's, that's horrible. If I'm going in to investigate, I'm taking every damn thing in the house. Right, right. <laughs> so they do decide that it's time to interview Lacey and get her side of the story. To their surprise, uh, Lacey is all for the interview and actually puts herself knee deep in the investigation. She doesn't appear to be grieving at all, um, which makes investigators, investigators wonder what's wrong with her. They're, she's asking all kinds of questions. She's just, you know, most parents would be beside themselves with grief. Yet, Lacey's a chatty Kathy running her mouth about everything and anything. And a lot of times about nothing to do with Garnet or the case. It's just her running her mouth. Um, it, it, which is definitely odd behavior. Oh, yeah. So, Lacey, during the midst of this shitstorm, calls her friend Valerie, um, the one that's connected with Garnet, um, and her friend. This is the friend from the community, and she asked her to go to her apartment and take the IV bag from the pole it was hanging on and dispose of it. So Valerie, who finds that to be a little bit of an odd request, goes to her apartment but then has second thoughts about trashing the bag and takes it with her when she leaves. I feel like that's a good call. Yeah, because why, Carrie, are you asking me to go 
take a bag off and throw it in the trash. That seems quite odd. It can wait till I get back, right? So she gets advice from a few other members within the community who convince her to call the police. Police go back to the apartment and grab the bag out of the trash and send it out for testing. Well, wouldn't you know it, the tests come back with extremely high levels of sodium in both bags. So the bag they found in the trash as well as the one that Valerie took from the apartment. In fact, there was an equivalent of 69 small packets of salt in each of the bags. So, you know, the little bags that you get with your throwaway silverware at the grocery store, I mean, at the restaurant, 69 of those. And I always think those little bat, those little things of salt have too much salt anyway. It's, I never use all of it. That's a lot of salt. It's probably equal, and I'm just assuming here, equal to one of those disposal like uh, can- containers that you get that you can just twist the top. Like I would imagine oh, yeah. it would be close to. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. 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 69 bags. That's a lot of bags of salt. Of course, Lacey is adamant that she didn't put salt in either bag. I don't know where it came from. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, she argues that it was 48 hours after the police um, originally searched her apartment. And the bags were exchanged multiple times. So anybody could have put salt in that bag. I'm banking on Lacey doing it. But, you know, that's just me. (laughs) Well, police conclude that Lacey brought in... Salt, pack, salt packets to Garnet's room at the hospital, open them up, put them in the cup that she was carrying into the bathroom the last time she took them, um, and then deliberately poisoned her son with copious amounts of salt. And it would be easy for her to pump that, you know, type of solution through Garnet's G-tube, and nobody would have been the wiser. It was discovered by investigators that Lacey had Googled high sodium levels two days prior to him being admitted into the hospital. A report was found that when Garnet was 10 weeks old, Lacey had told doctors she wanted to harm her son and he was bleeding from the eyes and ears. And if that's not a red flag, then I, and you know, that something's off with this chick, I don't know what is. Red flag. Detectives in talking with doctors um, said that they actually called Child Protective Services. Um, and they had called several times, but those calls did not lead, their, um, lead to further investigation. Oh, wow. Which says shit about, you know, I don't know if it's Alabama or, or New York, um, their Child Protective Service uh, Department. But one doctor actually wrote in his notes he felt like it was a possible Munchausen by proxy case and that somebody needed to look into Lacey. Psychologists who evaluated her after Garnet's death determined her to not have Munchausen by proxy. However, Munchausen experts say that psych evaluations are not where diagnosis comes from. It's actually in the inconsistencies where things don't align in a child's behavior. For example, in Garnet's case, you have Lacey saying that her son refused to eat and needed to get nutrients, you know, through his G-tube, yet there are photos documenting him eating, and you have witnesses who actually sat down and ate with him. So it's those things... Diagnosed differently. Yeah, are not adding up. And overdoses in sodium are a huge red flag for Munchausen by crop Easy peasy. Exactly. To top it all off, Lacey 
lied about Garnet's father, as I told you in the beginning, Lacey had gone to great lengths to honor this guy, Blake. Um, she had pictures on Facebook and MySpace about this man and her son paying tribute to him. So the pictures weren't actually of Blake, but they were of Garnet drawing pictures saying, I love my daddy and, you know, drawing police car, you know, and then they're, you know, at services where, you know, there's parades with police and my daddy was one of those just crazy posts. Well, he was essentially, she said, the love of her life. Well, it turns out the police officer Blake was alive and well, and he actually existed. Um, He and Lacey had never hooked up. He knew her in passing. She had made the whole damn story up. It was actually a guy named Chris Hill, who she had met in her own apartment complex. Um, She had hooked up with him, um, and (laughs) they had sex and had a baby. Well, he and his friends actually um, said they called her Predator because she was so cold and antisocial. God. So, so, but, you know, he was like, this is uh, neighbors with benefits. Um, and then it quickly, you know, kind of turned into more than them just kind of hooking up. Um, when Lacey told him she was pregnant, he tried to do the right thing and get her to marry him. And they even picked out the name Garnet together. But then it was shortly thereafter that she did a complete 180. She started telling him that he was actually not the father and refused to let her see, um, let him see her or the baby. And she broke it off and told him to stay away from him. Just get the hell away from me. So he was, you know, honored her wishes and was like, fine, I'll fuck off. (laughs) And when I get over there, I'll fuck off from there too. Exactly. I'm done. Well, Lacey is arrested and charged with second-degree murder and first-degree manslaughter. On February 3rd, 2015, jury selection begins in the Lacey Spears trial. Lacey's lawyer's strategy is to place the blame on the hospital, which, you know, did not prove to be the most likely story. And that's going to be hard, hard to prove. Especially since it was actually documented and they did call social services. Exactly. And a month later, on March 2nd, 2015, Lacey was found guilty on both charges and gets 20 years for poisoning her son. She sits in prison today, still protesting her innocence. And her lawyers tried appealing her case, but the Supreme Court, thank God, held up the conviction. So that's it all all I have on um, Munchausen. Um, I... I think there's probably a ton more cases out there. I had a whole list, but um, just due to time and and ability to talk on and on and on, um, we cut it just the, to the two. But um, if you suspect somebody of having said mental issues, please don't stay silent. Please speak up. I'd rather have somebody investigated than somebody end up dead. I mean, I don't want to say lose a friendship over it, but I feel like if you're close enough to somebody... And like if you and I were in that situation, I feel like in your heart of heart, you know. Oh, absolutely. I'd I'd have to intervene. Yeah, absolutely. I can't have that shit riding on my shoulders. I got enough shit on my shoulders. (laughs) So um, I hope you guys enjoyed um, our podcast today. Um, Thank you all for listening. And I hope everybody has an awesome and safe week. We'll be back the following week. Yeah. All right, guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.
This episode of Status Macabre is recorded live from the Maddie Johnson Podcast Studio at GOT Sound Studio in Columbia, South Carolina. This episode is produced and engineered by Neek the Geek, owner and operator of GOT Sound Studio. To support the show, please visit statusmacabre.com for links to social media, merchandise, and more. Special thanks to Muff the Producer, Neek the Geek, Barrett Gruber, and you, our listeners. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thank you for listening. <laughs>